Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hi everyone and a warm welcome back. This is the Sci-Fi Feminist bringing you all the coolest and latest things regarding women and feminism and pop culture. So actually I was planning for this week to do an episode on Lara Croft from the Tomb Raider video game franchise. But then something happened last week which was the release of the Snyder Cut of Justice League. So today I decided to do a special episode on one of the Justice League heroes, which is no one other than Wonder Woman. So today I'll be talking about Wonder Woman, um, her origins, where she came from, and I'm gonna contemplate the big question that everyone always asks, which is, is Wonder Woman a feminist icon or not? So she is quite interesting because since the beginning she has been very ambivalent as a feminist character and recently um, some people say that she's this new feminist character, uh, she's really a good role model for young girls and for women and she's very empowering but some people say she's not, she's still a sexist icon or maybe she was since the beginning, maybe she wasn't. So. I'll be talking a bit about this today and um, once again I really hope that you enjoy the discussion and um, yeah then next time we will talk about Lara Croft. So enjoy today's episode and um, let's get into Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman's origins dates back to 1941, Okay, that's really old, that makes her 80 years old this year which is um, I don't even have grandparents uh, that are that old. So she's a pretty old character. She's been around for almost 100 years. So she was created in 1941 by a man named William Moulton Marston. Now Marston was actually a psychologist and he's actually credited for inventing the lie detector machine, <laughs> strangely in psychology. So he invented the lie detector machine and then he also invented Wonder Woman. There's a very fascinating movie about William Marston that I highly recommend. It is called Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. And it is kind of the true story of his life. What is so interesting about this movie is that actually he was in a, do you call it polyamorous relationship? So he was in a relationship with two women and um, yeah, they all loved each other. <laughs> the women loved each other and they loved Marston and he loved the women. So it's a very interesting movie and it kind of shows this interesting relationship that he has with these two women and that they have with each other. I found it very interesting. Basically in the movie, what it comes down to is that the character Wonder Woman was created out of these two women. So you will see in the movie that the one, which is his wife uh, from the beginning, she is quite tough. She's a brunette and she is more straightforward, um, more academic focused. She, and I, I think this is true because the movie is based on true events. She, I think she had a PhD, but then the university didn't want to give it to her because she was a woman. So obviously in 1941 was before women had a lot of rights, especially in academia. Women weren't considered worthy of PhDs and being professors and lecturers at universities. Luckily a lot of that has changed now thanks to the second wave feminists. 
If you haven't listened to the series on second wave feminism, uh, I did a few episodes on that, so you can catch up there. But anyway, one of the wives then was this really quite strong woman. Then later they meet a student who is this really uh, blonde, sweet girl. <laughs> it's interesting how they are so opposite to each other. So she's a blonde girl. She's portrayed as really sweet and kind and um, more traditionally feminine, I would say. And then she kind of goes into a relationship with Marston and his wife. And then they create a family like that. So the woman also had lots of children. I think, I don't know how many in the movie I stopped counting, but um, they created this really big family. And then Wonder Woman was created out of these two women. So I guess that is kind of where this really contradictory origin of Wonder Woman comes from. When I saw that movie, I thought it was really at how different these two women are that inspired the character and that we see these really strange representational conflicts in Wonder Woman, the character herself. So on the one hand, Wonder Woman is considered a feminist icon because she was, and this was what William Marston wanted to create at that time, because at that time there weren't any female comic book heroes. You had the Supermans and the Batmans, but there weren't any female heroes. So Wonder Woman was the first of her kind. And Marston once said that he wanted to create a female hero that is strong, so she's not weak and submissive, and that can have like superpowers, that is tough, that saves people, that basically does everything that we see the male heroes do in the comics. But very interestingly, and this is the opposite side, is that Wonder Woman does all of her saving in her really skimpy Wonder Woman outfit. It's kind of like a costume or a, like a swimming costume or a leotard. And since the beginning, she's always had quite, um, her feminine signifiers were always emphasized. Her breasts, her butt, thin waist. She's tall and beautiful and she's basically the ideal woman. And then more than that, we often see themes of bondage come out in the Wonder Woman comics. And at some point, actually, the Wonder Woman comics were being censored because they say there were too many sexual undertones. So you would see Wonder Woman often being tied up by her own lasso and uh, all these really sexual themes or undercurrents that take place in the comics. And once again, this relates to uh, Marston's life. If you watch the movie, you see that him and the woman also um, often tied each other up, <laughs> if you understand what I mean. So I'm not going to go into that. But um, yeah, so yeah, I highly recommend that movie. And I will give the, the name of the movie in the description so that you can watch it if you haven't already. So yes, that's kind of where Wonder Woman came from. And I think that is why she is up to today, even 80 years later, she's quite ambivalent as a feminist character. So let's look at a brief history of Wonder Woman. So in the Golden Age of comics, that's when, when she was created. The Golden Age was for Wonder Woman from 1941 to 1950. And that's where we see her in her uh, dress with the American stars on and then her red corset with the yellow. Then there was the Silver Age of comics in which she changed a little bit. She had kind of like blue shorts so her blue skirt was replaced by blue shorts 
And then in the Bronze Age, she was a little bit more sexualized. You see that she's getting the leotard and not the shorts anymore. And um, that was from 1970 to 1985. Sorry, the Silver Age would be from 1956 to 1970. And then the Modern Age, which is considered to be from 1985 to today. So in the Modern Age of comics, Wonder Woman underwent quite a few transitions. We see that at some point she became a detective and then she abandoned this uh, leotard and that outfit completely and she was a detective. I think that happened between the Bronze Age and the Modern Age. And then in the Modern Age, you get comic book representations of her as this really highly sexualized character. There's this one comic book cover especially I'm not sure which one it is. I think it's number 34 by DC Comics. It's called War Torn. We see, and it was written by Meredith Finch, David Finch, and Sonia Oback. That comic book cover especially, I thought, was quite over the top. Her breasts are extremely big. Her outfit has become even smaller. And she is this really idealized version of femininity. So we can see with Wonder Woman 2 that actually she changes according to the ideas of women's empowerment. So in the second wave of feminism, where women were considered to be empowered if they had their own careers and their own jobs, we see that suddenly Wonder Woman has a day job and then she fights crime at night as a detective. So I thought that was quite interesting and I think Wonder Woman provides a very interesting account of how women's representation keeps changing because she's such an old character. Actually, I can't think of any other female superhero or significant female character that is as old as Wonder Woman and that is still ongoing and still being reincarnated in the media in different forms. So that is the interesting thing about Wonder Woman and I think that what, that's what makes her quite special. Now, in 2011, the character got a reboot in comics and then of course there was the 2017 Wonder Woman fil film which starred, starred Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman and then recently there was another one released called Wonder Woman 1984. I think it was released last year. And now she's featuring again in the Snyder Cut of Justice League. So the character keeps progressing and keeps changing. For the rest of the episode then, I'm going to look at a certain part of feminism called post-feminism, which I think provides a really useful framework for analyzing such an ambivalent character. And I think her representation will make more sense uh, once we understand post-feminism. And then I will also look at how she's portrayed in Justice League. Obviously, the Snyder Cut is not a new movie, but I think the additions, the two hours of footage extra, provides a bit more context of, on Wonder Woman. And I would like to briefly touch on that too. So I hope that you enjoy the rest of the episode. First off, let's look at post-feminism. It is generally believed that post-feminism emerged within cultural, academic and political contexts in the late 20th century and early 21st century in Europe and in America, in which consumer middle-class aspirations played a key role. 
Post-feminism is also linked to the increasing importance of the media and consumer culture, where second-wave feminism's collective activist struggle was being replaced with individualistic assertions of consumer choice and self-rule. So actually post-feminism has often been termed, because of this, commodity feminism, popular feminism or media-friendly feminism. And it has consequently also been accused for the depoliticization of the feminist movement, as well as the reinforcement of dominant patriarchal ideologies perpetuated by popular culture. So in contrast to the second wave, post-feminism argues for a different conceptualization of popular culture. In embracing various aspects of popular culture, and especially the images of femininity that the second wave criticized, such as the versions of Wonder Woman that I mentioned earlier, it puts forward the possibility of a popular kind of feminism that appealed to the young generation of feminists in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Now, many people have contemplated what does the post in post-feminism actually mean? Because post usually means that something is over or it is after something. So does post-feminism then mean that this is the feminism that came after feminism? Um, this becomes quite tricky. So there are two broad ways in which the post in post-feminism is interpreted. So first, the term post in post-feminism could indicate the pastness of feminism, which suggests that second wave feminism is over and that post-feminists are a new generation of feminists that no longer identify with the second wave. So in this way, post-feminism is quite similar to third wave feminism because third wave feminists also see themselves as apart from second wave feminism or as something different from the second wave. But problematically, the prefix post could also suggest that feminism is over and no longer relevant or necessary for a generation of women who were born with many feminist gains already made. So it is because of this notion that many third waivers, such as Angela McRobbie and Christina Stasia, two of my favorite theorists, they remain highly cr critical of post-feminism and I also remain critical of it because as the third wave is grounded in feminist theory and it builds on the second wave to a large extent, the post-feminists seem to distance themselves from all of the established feminist theory from the third wave and the second wave, which is quite problematic in my opinion. Okay, but what does post-feminism have to do with Wonder Woman and popular culture? It has everything to do with Wonder Woman and popular culture, actually. So what this one strand of post-feminism, it's called girly feminism or girly culture. What it does, it embraces the adoption of traditional signifiers of femininity as a means of emancipation from traditional feminine roles. Now, girly feminists or post-feminist girlies are exemplified by pop groups that greatly increased in number in the 1990s, such as the Spice Girls. And what they aim to do is they try to reclaim the word girl by dressing in pink, using makeup and nail polish and celebrating pretty power. The Pussycat Dolls have also been listed as post-feminist girlies. So I ask myself, are the Pussycat Dolls and the Spice Girls, are they feminists? 
This has been a debate for a very long time. And actually, the Spice Girls consider themselves feminists. They even wrote a manifesto about feminism. And this is where you see the slippage starting to come in here. It becomes a bit complicated because for me, the Spice Girls are not feminists because they just buy into traditional notions of femininity and they even package it nicely for us to consume. You have baby spice, sporty spice, I don't know the other two spices, <laughs> but basically they commodify feminism and they sell it to us as a product and then they say that's feminism. But in my opinion, what they're just doing is selling patriarchy right back at us. I've called this patriarchy in disguise or patriarchy disguised as feminism because I don't really think this is truly what feminism is about. And this is, of course, where Wonder Woman comes in. Wonder Woman is strong and she fights and she has superpowers and she can do everything that the male heroes can do, but she still sells traditional femininity to us. How does she do that? She does it with her big breasts and her thin waist and her long hair and her big butt. <laughs> now, you may, of course, ask the question, um, why can't a character have all of these feminine signifiers and be a feminist character? And I guess this is the whole point of post-feminism is they argue that that in itself is empowering. Why do we need to deny our femininity in order to be feminists? And I guess there is no answer to this. I'm just putting these things out there and it's up to you to create your own opinion of what it is about. There's a reason why post-feminists see the second waivers as old-fashioned and as mannish and as unfeminine and as gross <laughs> because, like I explained in the series on second wave feminism, Actually, second wave feminists deny these feminine signifiers because they deem it oppressive for women. So yes, we can go on about this forever, but let's go on to the next thing, which is girl power. Girl power came into being as a result of girly feminism, and this also took television and music by storm in the late 1990s. Girl power professes to reclaim elements of femininity and girlishness in fashion and style and discard the notions that feminism is anti-feminine and anti-popular and that femininity is always sexist and oppressive. By doing so, post-feminists critique and deflate the construction of the feminine and attempt to reinscribe femininity that oppressed women for centuries with new meanings of power. So. As a summary, you can say that post-feminism believes that women can be feminine and feminist at the same time, like Wonder Woman is. And then in an even further attempt to reinvent femininity, the post-feminist or ideal post-feminist woman uses her sexuality and femininity as an active form of recognition, motivation and agency. So for post-feminism, the sexual objectification of women that theorists such as Laura Mulvey deemed so problematic, I discussed Laura Mulvey in episode two, if you wanted to go back to that. So Laura Mulvey said that sexual objectification is really problematic, but for post-feminists, it's reinterpreted as sexual subjectification and women's sexuality is declared not to oppress them, but it rather becomes a means for them to attain freedom and power. 
and this is where Wonder Woman comes in again. Like I said earlier, Wonder Woman is quite sexualized. She, there's a lot of emphasis on her breasts and her outfit becomes smaller and smaller over the years. And even in the 2017 film, her outfit is quite revealing. Uh, even though there's not so much emphasis on that, her outfit is quite revealing and we often see her panty as she flies over. Um, for post-feminists, that is not a problem at all. That is the thing that empowers Wonder Woman, that makes her a feminist character. So again, I don't quite agree with this because still I feel like young boys watch Wonder Woman and they watch the movies and they get a certain idea of what the ideal woman is like. And then if normal women, which is 99% of the world, are not like that, then it's a problem. And then women's bodies are policed and then women have self-esteem issues and still Wonder Woman is the ideal woman. <laughs> she is not like everyone else. And um, I feel like that creates a false idea of what a woman should be or what a woman is like. So yes, what post-feminism deems as empowering, I don't really think so. I still feel like it's patriarchy in disguise. But then again, uh, you are entitled to your own opinions. So maybe for some people, this is empowering. Relating to this idea that women are now active subjects, provocative imagery of women is then no longer interpreted as enacted sexism, where women are the object of the gaze, but women are now the subject of the gaze because the sexualized imagery is out of their own choice. And this is a classic strategy by many pop stars like Beyonce, Miley Cyrus, Madonna, the Spice Girls, Britney Spears, they're all quite sexualized, but because they're doing it out of their choice, it is considered as feminist. So I'm sure you all know Miley Cyrus considers herself a feminist. <laughs> I'm sure she does. We saw in that mother's daughter video that is very overtly feminist. It have, even has like feminist texts in between the, the video shots. But then we see Miley Cyrus swinging naked on a wrecking ball in her music video for Wrecking Ball. And while I think that this is clearly objectifying her, this is considered as empowering and as symbolic of her control over her own sexuality. And this is considered empowering. And then all of the things Miley Cyrus does in the media, I often see on her Instagram, there's some naked picture of her or she's often half naked in her pictures. But all of these things that could be interpreted as objectifying the female body is considered as empowering or I'm sure Miley Cyrus thinks that she's empowered through this because she's doing it out of her choice and she's sexually liberated and she's financially independent. So therefore, she's not an object of the gaze, but she becomes a post-feminist subject. That being said, another facet of post-feminism then is female independence through consumer choice and individualization. Michelle Lazar wrote quite an important article on this. She terms post-feminist emphasis on choice and self-rule and entitled femininity where women are entitled to be pampered and pleasured and to unapologetically embrace feminine practices and stereotypes and are invited to become girls once more. So in this way, post-feminist choice is linked, and I think quite problematically, 
to the adoption of consumerism and capitalism as a feminist strategy. Because the post-feminist woman would then use her consumer capacity and her ability to make her own money as a form of self-expression and as a means for empowerment. Now we see this a lot in Sex and the City. Samantha, <laughs> she's actually one of my favorite characters. I didn't watch the series, but I've seen parts of her and I thought she's quite cute. She's a successful businesswoman who uses her money and her influence to spoil her female friends. And then, like I said earlier, the Spice Girls have also categorized femininity into five consumable facets, which is ginger, posh, scary, sporty, and baby spice. Okay, looks like there's five Spice Girls. I thought there was four. <laughs> okay, and then they also use girl power as their slogan and their marketing strategy. Obviously, this is quite problematic because not all of us have the money to be empowered through it or to express our femininity through our consumer choice. And also, as Audrey Lord, who is a theorist, she said, and I thought this sums it up quite well, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. In other words, post-feminism's use of feminine signifiers as well as overt sexuality and provocative imagery, runs the risk of simply reinforcing the very patriarchal power structures that it aims to subvert. Rosalind Gill, who's also a very big post-feminist theorist, she's also argued that post-feminism's overemphasis on physical appearance and pleasure encourages body policing, where the body is presented simultaneously as women's source of power and as always unruly, requiring constant monitoring, surveillance, discipline and remodeling and consumer spending in order to conform to ever narrower judgments of female attractiveness. Now, a good example of this is actually what happened with the turkey meme with Miley Cyrus. So in 2013, someone put a picture of Miley Cyrus's butt from the VMA performance next to a picture of a raw turkey. And then this went viral and it became the turkey meme. And actually, I, I read later in an article, Miley Cyrus didn't want to show her legs for like a year after that because it was so hurtful. So, yeah, that was supposed to be a feminist performance. But then this happened. And I think this just really shows the contradictions inherent in post-feminism. Now, moving on to Wonder Woman, post-feminism is obviously very complicated and so is Wonder Woman. I feel like Wonder Woman really captures this really strange relationship between women's empowerment and women's objectification. And we see this in the Wonder Woman movies too. So recently I watched Wonder Woman 1984 and it was interesting how this idea of body policing is evident in that movie too. Also in the first one, in 2017, there was one scene where they go shopping for Wonder Woman's clothing. And then Wonder Woman, the secretary, she's like trying to find something for Wonder Woman to wear. And then there's this corset. And then Wonder Woman is like, why would you wear that? And then the secretary is like, yeah, only a woman who doesn't need to wear that would ask that. Because Wonder Woman's obviously tall, skinny, beautiful. She doesn't need to do anything to shape her body or to make herself look nice. And I feel like that really captured this whole problem with post-feminism because 
Most women need to wear stuff to tuck in their bellies. And why do we need to do that in the first place? It's why is that expected of us? It is because of images like this in the media, because of these post-feminist representations of women, that women are feeling forced to kind of alter their bodies. I know a lot of this has changed, but I still feel like this is kind of the dominant ideology or what women feel they need to do in order to be accepted. Then moving on from this, there's another instance in Wonder Woman 1984, where we have this nerdy girl who becomes Cheetah in the end. So she's really disempowered. She's a nerd and she's apparently unattractive because looks like no, none of the men want to pay attention to her. She kind of drops all her files and things and then the men just leave her. And then she makes a wish that she can be like Diana and then she gets granted the wish and then she obviously turns into Cheetah. And then suddenly she wears high heels, she dresses in tight outfits and suddenly all the men pay attention to her and she really likes that and she really feels empowered through that. And that is such a post-feminist thing that happens there. And again, I feel like this is quite problematic because if you are that geeky girl, like I am, it kind of insinuates that men won't pay attention to you and you're not smart or wanted or nobody looks at you or wants to help you because you're this geeky girl that doesn't conform to the ideal type of femininity that Wonder Woman shows us in the movies. Interestingly, she wishes that she can be like Diana and then she becomes like Diana. But then instead of becoming good, she get, becomes evil. And then she uses this new empowerment to kill men and to destroy evil. It's very strange. I, yeah, actually, I didn't like Wonder Woman 1984 because of this. I felt like it was very contradictory. And this is really not the type of representation I want to show my children, to be very honest. Not that I have children, but if I had children, I wouldn't want to tell them that this is what being a woman is all about. So then what about Justice League, the Snyder Cut? Now don't get me wrong, I am a big fan of Wonder Woman. I know in this episode especially I might sound quite critical, but I do like Wonder Woman and I am a fan and I have read the comics since I was young and then my friend bought me the 75th anniversary comics which was really nice and um, I do like Wonder Woman, but I just remain critical and skeptical of the type of empowerment that she sells us. So I watched the Snyder Cut of Justice League and um, yeah, it was really cool. I really enjoyed the movie, but this is not a movie review. Um, I would like to discuss Wonder Woman. So then what happens in the Snyder Cut with Wonder Woman? So there are a few scenes that um, give more background on the Amazons, um, it shows a bit extra of Diana. And the first thing that I picked up, and this relates to what another theorist has termed feminism light or celebrity feminism. So the first scene where we really see Diana in action is when she helps to save the people from the bank robbery. So then the bad guys rob the bank and then she fights them off and she protects the people and that's all really nice. And then 
at the end of all of that she tells everyone oh everyone everything is okay now um don't worry and then the little girls from the school stare up at her and then there's one that looks at her and diana asks her are you okay and then she's like yeah and then i'm not sure i i forgot exactly what they said but then it comes down to uh, i think diana asks her what do you want to be one day and then the girl says, I want to be like you. And then Diana says, you can be anything that you want to be. Now, that seems like a very feminist thing to say, to suggest to women and to girls that they can be anything that they want to be. All that they need to do is grab it. And that is a post-feminist notion because post-feminism or post-feminists seem to be convinced that we live in a world where all the gains that should be made for women have been already made but that's not true there are women in the middle east that don't have any rights um there's recently um lots of violence against women against asian women against uh domestic violence there's still abortion issues there's still so many women's issues that have not been resolved and in fact not all women have the luxury to be whatever they want to be. Um, so this type of feminism that Wonder Woman sells to this girl, it seems very empowering, telling women you can be anything that you want to be, but it really doesn't take into consideration the women that don't have the luxury for that. Women um, that are not <laughs> living in America, that are not white and heterosexual and, um, all those things that Wonder Woman represents. So this is a very privileged kind of femininity, I feel. And I really feel like that's a very vague statement. And the fact that Wonder Woman tells this girl, you can be anything that you want to be, is not as empowering as it seems on the surface. So yes, again, I know I'm being very critical of Wonder Woman, but it's not really Wonder Woman. I think it's more um, post-feminism and... I think Hollywood feminism that um, sells this false notion of empowerment to women or that try to convince women that, you know, everything has been achieved for women's rights where it really hasn't. We are still, we have a long way still to go. Okay. And then uh, the other thing, there's another scene where I think the bad guy tells uh, the, what's it, the wasp people, he's like, no, leave her she belongs to me because he wants to fight wonder woman so he's like he says his word is are she belongs to me and then again the camera zooms up on her and she's like i belong to no one <laughs> and once again that is such a vague statement and again that is a luxury that not all women can afford some women are in the not in the position to belong to themselves. Some women have to for financial reasons, because they are disadvantaged, because of certain societal or structural laws. Not women, all women have the luxury to not belong to anyone. So once again, um, this sells us a very privileged form of femininity and actually a femininity that is not attainable by everyone. Think this is a femininity that might be attainable for upper middle class women um, that have the luxury to buy nice things to take care of themselves um, yeah but you get my idea <laughs> why i have a problem with this type of femininity 
and this is what post-feminism is it just is what it is and i think this has become the dominant ideology especially in hollywood that sells us this type of feminism now other post-feminist women and i will discuss some of them in future episodes some of them include laura croft if you know maybe not the new version of laura croft um, i'll definitely deal with that but definitely the old version of laura croft once again we have this tall heroine angelina jolie who is like the above average woman <laughs> not everyone looks like her and um, not everyone can fight like her or have the money that she has so that uh laura croft in the the old version of her would definitely also be this post-feminist form of femininity as well as like the charlie's angels um i can't think of any other ones now there are many in popular media Okay, and then um, one other problem that I had with the, the Justice League movie is that somehow Wonder Woman shows much more cleavage in this one than she does in the Wonder Woman movies directed by Patty Jenkins. We see the entire scene where she's in the Batcave. She has this really low halter um, dress, not a dress, a shirt. And then she always has these tight leather pants and high boots. And then she kind of raids a tomb in her high heels. There's the scene where she kind of drops into the tomb onto her heels. And I'm like, how did they not break? <laughs> so um, she's very much still selling this really traditional notions of femininity. And definitely she's eye candy. Um, I wonder if... They didn't expect many men to watch the Wonder Woman movie because she's the lead. But because the Justice League movie is maybe more male orientated because it has more male heroes and it's a bit more macho. Maybe they try to draw a male audience. So then Wonder Woman is definitely more sexualized in the Justice League movie than she is in the two Wonder Woman movies. So that's something I also picked up. And I guess I'm sounding quite old fashioned. <laughs> And people may ask, okay, so what should she be wearing then? Well, there's no right or wrong for what a superheroine must be like or what a superhero is. And, you know, you can make the same argument for the men. We also see them walking around without their shirts and they're all very well built. And you can also make an argument that the men in the movie are also objectified. And maybe you'll tell me, well, that's a superhero movie. That's what they should be. That's what the appeal is. But I think desexualization for women on women's side um, is definitely a good start. When I saw the image for the new Black Widow movie, and actually throughout uh, the Avengers movies, I really liked Black Widow's outfit because, okay, in the beginning it starts off with a little bit of a low neck uh, neckline, but then later her outfit becomes quite practical, quite functional, and the type of outfit that you would expect a spy to wear. So I think that's a good start. Obviously, I'm not saying Black Widow is the ideal heroine. I don't think there is anything like an ideal heroine. But I do think we need to be critical of these types of images because um, just saying that Wonder Woman is feminist and she's absolutely empowering for all women in the world, I think that is a statement that we shouldn't, make so lightly or say so easily because Wonder Woman has been considered as this new female hero that's this feminist superstar and that's this role model for girls but um, to be honest uh, I think I don't think she's the 
the best role model because she she sells us a femininity that is very hard to obtain and that actually doesn't really exist so yeah i think um if they could desexualize her and give her maybe a more practical outfit something that she can actually fight in there's a scene where i saw the amazons running and their armor looks so heavy but then maybe you'll tell me you know but that's what the amazons wear yes maybe it is true um i don't know i don't have the answers but yeah that is just my take on wonder woman and on the Zack snyder cut anyway at the end of the day i really enjoyed that movie i thought it was really great and i also enjoyed the wonder woman movies i watched the first one i think three or four times and i really liked it and it's all really good and it's good entertainment um i don't want to burst anyone's bubble with my criticism of wonder woman but um yeah it's just my opinion and i just think we need to be critical of what we consider to be empowering so then at the end of the day, the question, is Wonder Woman a feminist character or not? Well, she is both, <laughs> and she's neither. <laughs> that is the answer, and that is the thing that is post-feminism. Post-feminism, it's both empowering and it's not. And Wonder Woman too, I think she is empowering in certain ways. She is very empowering, and it's very nice and fun to see a female hero and especially a female hero that now has two of her own movies and a female hero that is strong, powerful, that fights crime, that's righteous and um, has a good heart and does everything that the male heroes do. That is nice to see and I think that is important and it is important to have female heroes like this and to have them represented. But I do think there are some aspects of her that could be problematic and um, that are not as empowering as they seem. So yes, that is my take on Wonder Woman. I hope you that you really enjoyed today's episode. I'm sorry for being so critical of her. I don't like criticizing things, but um, I guess that just happened today because I'm not a big fan of post-feminism. But then yes i hope that you enjoyed the episode and then what does wonder woman say <laughs> there's no live long and prosper but anyway since i say that live long and prosper and i can't wait to do the next episode which might be on laura croft we'll see how it goes okay thank you for listening bye bye this show is brought to you by hollow sweet media Computer, list other available Holosuite media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Random Trek Review, a Star Trek review podcast. We get kind of that funny little bit where he's got the relationship book, and I guess maybe they're foreshadowing a little bit of, you know, future, you know, hunk <laughs> Odo. <laughs> the, the, like, romance book was hilarious. He had a funny line. I forget what it was exactly now. I didn't write it down. I only read three chapters. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That was that was pretty good. And they definitely do this. When they have kind of a heavy, deep episode, they'll sometimes put a little bit of a joke or, or something light off the top. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Voyages, a Star Trek original, animated, and Kelvin Films podcast. Full honesty, I did find that the scene was seemingly long when they were driving with him and, and Scotty to get to the Enterprise when they were in their little capsule. I felt that that was a very long scene driving around the whole Enterprise. But find yourself someone in life that looks at you the way Kirk looked at the Enterprise. I mean, that was a beautiful moment.
And I absolutely adored when Spock came back onto the Enterprise. Just how everybody on the bridge, like Yuhura and Chekhov and everybody, they just kind of rallied around him. And it was a really warming moment just to see that original core group of people just celebrate him and happy to see him. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.